All right, so you go to Arista, you get uh, signed by Clive, um, and the first record is um, from South Africa to South Carolina, and this definitely takes you guys to a new level. Um, like I mentioned in the intro, um, part of that was uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, where I saw you guys. Correction, correction. The first one was um, First Minute of a New Day. Oh, that one preceded it. Okay, because they both came out in 75, I think. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So that one then, um, still, um, certainly there was a lot more um, to your guys' sound. I noticed uh, more elaborate percussion, and you had tracks like um, uh, Ain't No Such Thing as Superman, and Gorilla especially had kind of intricate percussion on it. Yeah. So then tell me about uh, that record, Brian. So, um, first minute of a new day was the representation of our new of our new band. Um, we had been going with this band for for a while, but um, and and we were really anxious to to get into the studio and record it. It included um, Barnett Williams, who was the master drummer um, elite in in Washington D.C., who I had happened to meet and just felt like we had to have this guy. I mean, even though we already had two percussionists and a drummer, I just felt like I really, we needed to have this guy. I mean, I met Barnett in a, a dance studio where he played uh, drums for, for African dancers. He just was in there by himself um, practicing. He had a, um, he had a microphone and um, a Fender amplifier. And he was playing some congas. And when I came in to meet him, he started playing this rhythm. And he told me, okay, this is the name of the rhythm. This is what, this is what part of Africa it comes from. And then he plays a little bit more. And then he says, this is the song. He starts singing into the microphone. He says, this is the song that goes with it. And he's playing, right? And then he gets up and then he does the dance. <laughs> he said, that's the dance that goes along with it. And I thought to myself, I, I, I asked him, I said, so how do you know the, the same thing about all of the rhythms that you play? And he said, yes, I know all the things about all the rhythms that I play, the history of them, etc. What they mean, the words, you know, the dances that go with it. I am the founder um, a society called Society for, for the Preservation of African Percussion. And that's my job. I take it very seriously. And I thought right then and there, I said, that's what we need in this band, you know? And I asked him to join, and he did. So that was one of the great expansions of the Midnight Band. Um, we did some other expansions after that, but that was probably, I would say, the most key. And uh, couldn't wait to get into the studio and record record with that with that band with that um with that personnel and uh, so we did and it was just basically songs that we had come up with um working with the band um and also material that gil had, and i had written from before from the the years that we had been been writing together before for instance a toast to the people which showed up on that album I think uh, with that record too, you know, ain't no such thing as Superman. 
to me was um, really the most solid influence of kind of, um, you know, getting funk into the mix too. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that, uh, what was the genesis of that? What was the genesis of that? The genesis of that was that it was something that influenced me and all of us and influenced us greatly. Funk and, um, and soul. I, you know, my my first the first record I bought was Walking. The second the second record I bought was Where Did I Love Go by the Supremes. You know, um, in that brief time period, I, you know, I went back and forth um, between buying jazz albums and, and soul albums, Curtis Mayfield and um, and the Impressions. Um, <clears throat> You know, The Temptations, later on, Sly and the Family Stone, Jimi Hendrix. You know, so these influences had all been swirling around in all of our brains. Otis Redding, um, Al Green. Gil and I used to listen to that stuff up and down while we drove up and down 95 South to to a gigs. And um, this this was the backdrop of our our lives, to include it, to not include it in, in what we did would have been impossible. It would have been impossible. So how'd you manage to cut two records that came out in the same calendar year? Was there, were these songs sort of uh, done in same sessions or were they actually, you know, set uh, separate section uh, sessions? They were, they were different sessions. Um, trying to remember where we did. I think we did a lot of um, uh, first minute. Uh, I don't remember. I'm not sure what we did first minute. I know that we did. Um, do you have it? Um, D and B Sound, Maryland. Oh, okay. So I was right. So we actually recorded um, a lot of that album in Jose Williams' studio, the same studio that we recorded Winter in America. So um, we had, we just stuck with a good thing, you know, basically we, we, we loved working with Jose and uh, we stayed, we stayed there. Uh, the second album we recorded at Electric Lady studio, Jimi Hendrix's, um, old, the old studio that Jimi Hendrix had, had built for himself. And it was something I used to pass by that studio all the time. <clears throat> on 8th Street, in uh, West 8th Street, in, in Manhattan, in, in Greenwich Village. And uh, I always had wanted to go and uh, see what was on the inside. Well, we got our chance, and uh, we recorded that album. We recorded that album there, yeah. That must have been a thrill, electrically, Yeah, it was one of the huge thrills of my life. So from South Africa to South Carolina, um, this record helped break you, I think, to uh, another level of popularity. <clears throat> Johannesburg, um, also uh, South Carolina, yeah. powerful song. And uh, then you had a real epic track on there, over nine minutes, Essex. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Talk about that record. Talk about the Serenity Live experience. Talk about um, really starting to get out there and do concerts. Essex was one of the songs that um, Bilal Suni Ali, our saxophonist, um, had written 
and it was um, a song written. It was a song written for for Mark Essex, and uh, I guess you would have to those those of you who are in would have to look him up. The the system in America, you know, the the system of, of racism in America has, you know, has caused people to react in, in many different ways. And, uh, you know, some of them are, many of them are, are unfavorable. Many of them are, 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 are desperate. And, uh, you know, we look at them and when you look at the totality of them, you know, you, you, I think you, you begin to get a picture of how devastating um, uh, some of the things that uh, this country has done have been to its people. Um, and I think that Mark Essex is a, is a good example of that, actually. You know, and I don't, um, I don't, I don't believe that uh, that his solution, or the, what he felt was the solution, was the, was necessarily the solution that would work for us uh, as a nation, as a people. Um, and we're just to to emphasize that point. I mean, we're still we're going through that we're going through that right now. We're experiencing that that right now, um, so we haven't moved much from uh, from 1972 in that regard, um, and so I guess in that sense, Essex, uh, the song Essex, like uh, the song, uh, like many of the songs that that um, we have done over the years have have been kind of more prophetic than than we would have preferred them to be, than that we would have liked them to be. But uh, yeah, it was a song written by Bilal Suni Ali. Um, and uh, if anything, let it point to the, the sense of, of desperation uh, and, and a hopelessness that, uh, that, that many of us find ourselves, that many of us find ourselves in. Um, and the solutions, whether acceptable or unacceptable or somewhere in between, are uh, the things that we are we are called in ourselves to, uh, you know, to, to do. Unfortunately, sometimes some of those things are, are extremely harmful. Well, and that definitely speaks to, you know, the timelessness of the body of work that you guys did. I mean, I'm sure when you were doing a lot of it, you thought, wow, this is a social ill right now, but I bet in 30, 40 years, uh, maybe things will be better or wouldn't exist. Um, <clears throat> and now, you know, today, so many years later, does it feel disheartening to see so much strife that's similar to what it was back then? Yeah, we didn't think that. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't think it was going to get any better. You weren't optimistic, huh? Yeah, no, we weren't optimistic at all. And I think that if you listen to, like, as you have, you know, if you listen to a lot of our, um, our music, you'll know that... Uh, if anything, we were kind of signing the warning, sounding the, the warning bells, um, trying to kind of wake people up to, to the fact that if, if we don't do something now, it's just going to be more difficult to do something later, um, if not impossible. And this is what we've, we've seen, you know, this is what we've seen. We, we haven't taken the steps that were necessary. And um, so now things are further out of control than they were 50 years ago, 40, 50 years ago. 
but really, I mean, I don't want to get too political on this. We're mostly music, but I um, can't help it with, you know, the kind of music you guys did yeah. to some extent. But, um, you know, when Gail was writing uh, stuff, uh, you know, inspired by, you know, Nixon or inspired by Ronald Reagan, you know, you know, did you ever think you'd have, you know, an administration like we do now? And, you know, what might he have said if he was around today? Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I think that uh, after, I'll tell you, after Nixon, because when, when Nixon was running for office, I thought to myself, okay, nobody's stupid enough to elect this guy. And then he was elected. And then it came uh, Ronald Reagan. I said, okay, everybody, clearly everybody can see this guy as an actor. He's not a, he's not a president. Got elected, got reelected. You know, and then there was, um, oh boy, I mean, we go through the bushes and each time we thought to ourselves, okay, I thought to myself, anyway, okay, people are just not that, that dense. You know, obviously we can see that this is a step backwards and <clears throat> what happened. And so when Trump ran, ran go ahead, that's okay. Okay, when, when Trump ran for office, I thought, you know what? I've been saying the same thing for 40 years. And each time I have been, quote unquote, surprised. So this time, let's just assume that Trump wins. And what happened? So, you know, if anything, I think um, we, we kind of knew after Richard Nixon, after Richard Nixon was elected, we kind of knew where, where things were going. And it wasn't getting any better. Um, <clears throat> surveillance. Yes, surveillance was, was coming on big. Uh, a change in, in, uh, in policies toward education and um, defense, you know, was something that, that was starting to, uh, to really change rather than, rather than phasing out uh, the money that we spend uh, on the military. We were putting more money into it um, rather than <clears throat> Rather than finding uh, solutions for uh, uh, nuclear energy uh, or finding uh, solutions for uh, eliminating some of the, the greenhouse gases that we you know that, that we have uh, that are destroying that are destroying the planet and the pollution that is destroying the planet, we're delving further into it. We're ignoring it even even more than we than we had before. So <clears throat> this has been a a steady a steady step, you know, it's, it's been continually happening. Uh, it's being furthered by the, uh, by the companies and the corporations that benefit the most from it. It's no surprise. And it really has nothing to do with who is president, you know. But, you know, just when uh, Obama got in office, so did you think that that was signaling, you know, finally a, a change? Because it seems like it would have really created was a worse backlash in a way. There was that. Yeah, there was definitely that. And there was also the fact that you're not going to buck insurance companies. You're not, <coughs> excuse me, you're not going to, you're not going to um, buck insurance companies and their agenda, nor the pharma, the, the pharma companies, nor the agribusiness companies. They are just too large for, for any one person to take on. And apparently for our government to take on as well. Um, too many lobbies. Too many packs, too many um, 
too too many ways for uh, for those big businesses to get around uh, above and under people. And so we're in, you know, I mean, it was, it's basically the same as it was in uh, in in the seventies. There's no change. They've gotten more powerful. That's about it. And their agenda has remained the same. So, you know, yeah, it was good. I mean, historically, it was great that we had Obama as a president. It's something that that gave all of us a little hope and a little more faith in in humanity, and a little bit more faith in. A little bit more hope that uh, that that the that America could become um, a less biased place, um, and uh, that happened. Um, the election happened, but then the backlash, as you say, was was tremendous. And uh, you know, in the in the end, did it really did it really advance us? I I, I wonder. I don't know. Yeah. Well. Um... Uh, you know, now that I have uh, a son, he's 12, and you have your twins, I mean, I'm more concerned than ever. Um, it's a lot different when you're a parent than yeah. just when it's yourself. But yeah. um, so, you know, when you were doing these, for lack of a better term, I think, you know, there are awareness uh, songs about awareness, songs about activism, songs about protest. Mm. Do you feel like you affected? some change or do you think it was more just kind of making people somewhat aware and if you could speak to also just the kind of vibe that we had back in the 70s with a lot of music like that um you know not as you know 100 percent dedicated to it but you know you had your you know tracks by the ojs and um earth wind and fire stevie wonder stevie wonder all those all those guys you know they were at least doing some of their songs that were pointing these things out marvin gay that's so, right. How do you feel about the whole movement? Curtis Mayfield. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is, and this is something that, that I always bring out, that I always point out to people when they say that uh, Gil and I were at the forefront of, of, of something, you know, of consciousness movement. I mean, this, this was the, this was the day that we were living in. I mean, everybody was, all musicians, were, were affected by it. Some of them spoke out and, you know, and some of them didn't. And some of them did in their own ways that maybe it was a little too soft for, for people to actually get. But uh, no, I think everyone was, was affected in, in one way or another, particularly in the 70s. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but... Uh, well, well, I was asking how much, how much effect do you think it had on the culture? Yeah, I mean, how much effect did our music have on the on the on the culture, or, or how your, much your music, and in a larger sense, the the movement? I think that it was important that we that we did what we had to do, because um, people, there were people who weren't artists, you know, there were people who who didn't have a voice, who felt that that. We understood them, they, 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 or, or they felt that we, that there were people out there who, who agreed with them. And I think that um, people who were in the public eye or people who had the uh, attention of a um, large number of people were, were consistently trying to take advantage of that, uh, of that vantage point. Um, 
to let people know that they that they aren't alone and to let people know that they're not wrong about what they see. And I think that our, that was our job, to let people know that they were not wrong. If they see this, we see it too. And that's basically all we were trying to do. Um, we didn't feel like we were gonna convert anybody. Um, many times when we performed, we felt like we were preaching to the, the choir because um, the people who were there already knew what we, what we were gonna say. They already, they already were on the same page as us when, when they got there. So it wasn't so much about, it wasn't so much about educating people, even though that was our idealistic notion. Um, it was in, in the end, it was really about fortifying uh, those who, who needed it, who needed it the most, people who could see and, um, and realize that, that something must be done. Going forward, um, years later, I mean, the children of those people and the grandchildren of those people were listening to these tracks and getting something out of it and getting an understanding of how long some of these problems have existed. Um, I think it helps to give them perspective uh, on, on exactly what it is that they're dealing with. I think exactly. I mean, for me, uh, as a teenager growing up with it, you know, I didn't get out there and protest and march and that kind of thing, but it definitely built an awareness within me and brought in my perspective and made me feel angry about injustice in the world. Yeah. And um, so I've carried that with me my whole life as my perspective. And it, you know, comes out in how I make decisions, how I vote, what I pass on to my children. Yeah. So from that perspective, I think it's a huge, huge, uh, important movement. Exactly. Um, all right, let's get back to the music a little bit. We were on the um, um, album with Johannesburg. You were getting out there and, and, and playing more. Um, you know, what do you remember from the road? Any interesting uh, stories from the road? You know, who you shared the stage with and maybe something unforgettable that happened while you were out there? We shared the stage with so many people that uh, I looked up to, and and some people I thought, "Wow, what am I doing? What am I doing on this gig with these guys for?" Like one time, we did a a tour of our, like three, at least three or four um, three or four um, big concerts with um, Cameo, The Spinners, and Casey and the Sunshine Band. <laughs> we were opening up for them. And I'm thinking, okay. Yeah, this, this really is a <laughs> <is> new era, <laughs> you know. But um, there were, then there were other people that we opened up for, who I also wondered what we were doing opening up for them, but people like Herbie Hancock and, uh, and the Headhunters, or um, Weather Report and Earth, Wind and Fire. Um, Earth, Wind and Fire had been given a day by, by the then mayor, Thomas Bradley of Los Angeles. Um, he declared an Earth, Wind, and Fire Day, and there was going to be a concert held at Hollywood Bowl, and uh, they asked them who they wanted to to appear on the show with them, and they they chose Weather Report to open up for them, and for to open up for Weather Report, they chose us, and so that was our first time out to um, to Los Angeles, and uh, that that's definitely one of those concerts that I I will not forget. Um, and Joe Zabino walk around backstage with his hands to his side, you know, like a, like a like almost like a gunslinger, you know. <laughs> and then somebody described him as a, they said like he looked like a martial artist, you know, who 
was scared to move, you know, like scared to move his hands too much in one direction in case he would like knock something down, knock somebody over. He had very powerful hands, very powerful hands. And then there was uh, the guy, the, the guys in Earth, Wind, and Fire, like Philip Bailey, who carried his vibe, his vibes around wherever he's like a tremendous um, jazz vibraphonist. I don't think I don't know if many people know that, but he plays. Um, I thought, wow, is Bill Jackson here? You know, and 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 I turned the corner. It was Phil outside of the dressing room playing his vibes. He had them brought around with him wherever he, wherever he was. And uh, Herbie and the Headhunters. Um, um, I remember that I you know, Herbie was one of my one of my great influences, one of my great life influences as far as piano is concerned. And uh, I had been opening for him all this time. I was trying to get the courage to go and talk to him. And uh, one day, Bill Summers, the percussionist in, in the band, asked me if I wanted to meet him. And I said, yeah, I guess I'm ready, you know, to myself, I'm thinking. So I had the speech in mind. And I went, I had the speech in mind. You know, Herbie, you're one of the greatest influences in my life. Uh, you know, I, I there's so many things that, that I wouldn't be doing, I probably wouldn't be doing this now if were for you, blah, 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 on and on and on. So I get into the room and Herbie is like sitting right in front of the door. So as soon as I come in, you know, I'm about to introduce myself to him, you know, extend my hand, you know, I'm about to extend my hand and say who I am. Of course, he knows who I am already because I'm, you know, I've been opening for him for, you know, but I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know whether he, whether he hung around to hear us or whatever. So. I'm going up to him and I'm getting ready to, to deliver the speech to him. And he goes, um, what did you think about, did you hear the piano? Was it okay? Was it a little distorted? Or, you know, what did you think of it? How did you find that piano? What did you think of it? And I thought to myself, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to deliver the speech, you know? <laughs> so we just started talking about the piano and, you know, we just started talking about music and stuff. And that, that was the, uh, that was the, that was the end of it, you know? I mean, not the end of it because, uh, you know, We've definitely run into each other from time to time. And uh, Herbie's a very nice guy. He's just a really, really down-to-earth person. Um, so there were all kinds of experience, experiences like that that I had on the road. And, uh, you know, some of those pairings that you mentioned make me think of, you know, when the Monkees opened for Hendrix or uh, I think the BC Boys opened for Madonna, you know, so yeah. how they get these ideas, you know, but... You know, of course, with Herbie and that stuff was ideal, but man, some of those other ones, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Roy Ayers, I used to run into him in airports all the time. That used to be our favorite meeting meeting place. I'd be running for a plane, and he'd be running in the opposite direction for a plane, and we'd look at each other, and we'd be like, uh, uh, you! <laughs> and then we'd keep running, you know? <laughs> so there were things like that. So in the live performance, though, um, did did Gil progress as a, a performer, as a um, stage presence? You know, and I know you said that you were shy, but you know, how did you guys um, cultivate or progress in your live engagement and performance? Oh wow! Musically, I think it was through music. Um, our music evolved as our music evolved. It required both of us to evolve personally, and uh, I, as I was the the MD, the music director of the of the band. You know, it required more and more um, involvement and more and more kind of, uh, you know, leadership. You know, when, when we started doing bigger venues and when we started doing uh, 
uh, you know, TV shows and that kind of thing, it kind of required required that, that I step out a little bit more and, and be a little bit more um, assertive as far as, as that's concerned. That's when we started doing the albums, when we started recording at places like uh, Electric Lady in Tonto with uh, Malcolm Cecil in, in Santa Monica, um, it required that, you know, that I'd be more present than I, that I try to cut through some of the, the problems, you know, or whatever that we might be having, <coughs> excuse me, that we might be having doing a track or getting through a track or working through an arrangement or rearranging something, you know, it's just, it's just that you have to, you know, you have to, you have to grow um, if you're going to um, succeed in, in, in in doing your music and in, in doing it in the way that you you hear it, you know, in your head. Gil um, had to um, had to evolve as a as a singer, and um, he did. He, he evolved. He became a um, a great singer, and he became a um, uh, kind of a comedian. You know, he, he used to do um, these skits. These. Uh, before we started, before we started the musical portion of the show, he used to kind of almost like a stand-up routine where he would kind of go through the events of the, of the, the current events, the events of the day, with his um, sarcastic, ironic uh, look at at uh, at them, and would have people in stitches. You know, and this is something that he honed to a, a razor-sharp uh, skill. Um, and as a an interviewer, um, as an interviewee rather, he he became very precise, and uh, you know people began to look at him as a as a spokesman, uh, <clears throat> as a spokesman for uh, for black folks, and and it's something that he never really um, took to very much. You know, he didn't feel like a spokesman for anybody except himself. And, uh, you know, his opinions didn't stand for, he felt that his opinions didn't stand for a lot of people. Um, but he, if they agreed, then they agreed, and that was fine. But, you know, it wasn't, he wasn't trying to speak on behalf of anyone. You know, he got, kind of got pigeonholed into that, and it's something that I think he kind of regretted. You mentioned uh, the Earth, Wind & Fire experience and you know i had actually made a note that you know you came out with the uh it's your world double album yeah <laughs> and uh that was kind of similar to what earth wind and fire did right around them with gratitude where they had you know some studio tracks and they had some live tracks it was a it was a funky record um and it included um of course the title track it's your world possum slim was pretty funky um and then uh a longer version live of the bottle. Um, tell me how that record came together. Well, um, I don't. I don't. I think we were thinking about maybe leaving Arista, and um, <clears throat> we had a six-album deal, and um, that was two. <laughs> <laughs> that made it a lot quicker for us to make an exit if we if we needed to. Um, but also, probably beyond that, and even before that, 
Um, people had been telling us often that your album, your studio albums are great, but when you guys hit the stage, excuse me, but when you guys hit the stage, there's something, there's a, there's a magic that you have never captured, that you were never able to capture in the studio. And we thought about that and it was true. Um, there was a, a spontaneity, a spontaneity that, that uh, it didn't always translate in the studio. And there was a, one thing that was so evident um, is that the audience was the other part, was the other musician. The, the audience was the other instrument um, in our shows. We, we included everyone um, in our performances and that, that changed the music. So whenever we performed live, of course it was going to be different than, than in the studio. And what we wanted to do, we really wanted to capture that. We wanted to make sure that we were able to, to, to put that, to document that and put it somewhere on, on wax. And that, that, was, that was the primary reason for us doing that. And Paul's Mall was a great place, a place where we felt comfortable in at Boston. It was a very intimate place. Home is where the hatred on there in particular is epic. I mean, that's really an elaborate, deep cut. Yeah, yeah, we, we go in and we kept going in. I mean, from, from that point to, I mean, we, we played that song all the time. It was kind of a jump off point for exploration for all of the musicians in the band. I, and you mentioned Herbie. I, I Unless I'm imagining it, I hear Herbie influence in that cut. Am I wrong? Sure. No, you're not wrong. You did. Definitely not wrong as far as the uh, the echoplex, the you know the, the 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 effects that we that I was using on the on the keyboard, absolutely, and the, the synthesizers, and yeah. So Bridges dropped uh, the next year, nineteen seventy seven, and to me, I think uh, interesting title. I don't know if it had anything to do with it, but in a way, it was kind of a little bit of a bridge record in kind of you know fully bringing you from where you guys had come. Yeah. to where you were currently and going with you know um, your your music and, and your in your presentation so um, and you said you were actually thinking about leaving hours at that time so what was happening with that record so at some point um, Clive decided that he was going to drop us in the middle of uh, of Santa Monica in uh, to work with Malcolm Cecil in a, a studio that Malcolm Cecil had designed um, with a, a room full of synthesizers. And I'm not sure if he thought that that was gonna be the, um, that was that was gonna take us to our, our, our level of incompetence, you know, and therefore um, to the admission that we needed some help, you know, that we needed a producer to step in and help us. Um, but if that was his intention, it, it certainly didn't happen. And, uh, you know, I, I felt quite at home with uh, with all of these synthesizers, and uh, Malcolm and I got on famously, and uh, the result was was that you know, was that album in uh, nineteen eighty and uh, Secrets. Well, some might you know quibble with it being too commercial. I thought it had a perfect blend, frankly. I mean, I really uh, liked what you were doing then, and um, you know songs like uh, Hello Sunday, Hello Road, and This Truck in France. It's funny because the Hello Sunday, Hello Road reminds me a little bit of Boogie Out Reggae Woman. I hear some Stevie Wonder influence mm -hmm. in that. And and then in uh, 
racetrack in France, you actually name check Sherim Amour. So I don't know if that was a coincidence or what, but I know Stevie mm -hmm. was an influence. Exactly, exactly. Well, we were using the um, the instruments that Stevie had used to um, to make music of my mind and, and so many of those other great um, albums. Uh, Tanto, the room full of synthesizers um, that Malcolm Cecil and Robin Mongoliff had uh, had put together. So maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe the spirit of Stevie was still in the room somewhere. That's a good spirit. It sure is. <laughs> you know, and uh, Vidgolia, that was way funky, that track. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you can't you can't be in a room of synthesizers, a room full of synthesizers and and not have funk on your mind. And people like the Isley brothers and, and Weather Report and, and Stevie and Billy Preston had all used that stuff had all used those, and um, they were great, huge influences on me. All of those artists were huge influences on me. So for for me to uh, not get excited by the opportunity to work with those and, and to not have that reflect um, in my in my production style you know it's very difficult you know very difficult to conceive so yeah i i um i embraced the idea of um, of, of doing funkier stuff i mean i was listening to funky stuff you know i was um i was listening to what miles was doing also yeah i was listening to a lot of what the 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 jazz musicians were doing mixing um they were mixing rb and and funk in their music and i thought why not why not mix all of those things and and why not mix rock and, and country and gospel. I mean, why, why not mix all of it? I mean, because it's all things that we all listen to. I mean, I listened to all of those things coming up and everybody I knew listened to all those things coming up. So why am I, what am I hiding from? You know, <laughs> what am I trying, what am I, what part of myself am I not, am I not supposed to expose? I think that definitely makes the, the best music, you know, when you have bring all those things together, even if it's not in that genre, just taking something from that qualities from it and integrating it together for a new whole is yeah. what can just make something so amazing you. um you know and actually i was looking at a listing of some of the influences that you cite and continuing you know on to more uh recent years you, know, you have diversity in that list you know you, of course you have the jazz cats that you would expect mm -hmm. and some of the guys we talked about from r&b like stevie wonder but you also mentioned people like Metallica and Steely Dan and um, all these, uh, uh, um, not sure if Chuck D or Public Enemy was in there, but all these very diverse uh, influences. Uh, so, you know, how important it is for a musician to be an open vessel for that? I think that if you're not an open vessel for all kinds of music, how can you really call yourself a musician? How can you call yourself somebody who studies music if you're not studying music you know um sure we all have our preferences perhaps but i think it's important really to keep an open mind because you will find inspiration from some of the least expected areas and um you, you know if you're not open to that you're you're kind of closing your your development and as a musician the goal is to always be developing is to always be learning to always be open to to new to new ideas 
the, the problem is that, you know, a lot of the labels and producers, they try to, you know, direct you in the one place. Well, they also try to direct the consumers that way. Well, so, you know, that's... So, yeah. More so that, you know, because uh, there's, so much, there's so much music out there that uh, it's the consumer confusion that uh, they're trying to help um, alleviate and eliminate so that person will say, oh, I'm into such and such, so I'm going to go to this box right here and buy something from that. I was never like that. I, I traveled the whole store. I went around the whole music store looking for stuff. I always found something. Well, yeah, and you guys were hard to categorize for the record stores back then in the 70s. Yeah. I remember, you know, I, I hung out, I lived at those stores, and, you know, I'd be like, okay, well, it's in jazz here, it's in R&B here, it's uh, more soul here, it's, oh. <laughs> you know, spoken word over here or something. I mean, yeah, exactly, exactly. Man. So I, we succeeded. Broke <laughs> <laughs> out of the box. That's what we were trying to do. Yeah. Another great record came in uh, 78, it was, with uh, Secrets and um, Angel Dust was possibly your, your, your biggest radio record. Um, it certainly got played a lot. I was in Los Angeles, and um, KDAY was the big R&B black station back then, and they had a heavy rotation that was real slow and funky, but had this kind of like foreboding quality to it, which matched so well with the lyrical content. And, Back then, I mean, I don't know if people realize what an epidemic uh, PCP had become, especially in the inner city. Um, can you talk a little bit about that record, Brian? Yeah, well, see, the thing is that at that time, people were, people considered almost any drug they took a rec recreational drug, you know? So people considered cocaine a, rec a recreational drug, you know? I mean, almost anything, acid, people were doing LSD, people considered a recreational drug. Everything was a recreational drug. So when PCP came, people were considering that a recreational drug, a recreational drug. And like many of those other drugs that I mentioned, like, those, like all of those other drugs that I mentioned, they can have some very extremely detrimental effects to your personality or your, your well-being. And Particularly so, um, with the, I think the speed of of of, um, of how um, angel dust or PCP could affect one's um, psychological makeup, I think was kind of astounding to me. I mean, you know, I had seen some people who had smoked angel dust and just completely lost their minds, like within short order. You it know? took away humanity. Yeah, yeah. I mean. I, the one the one case I remember that kind of almost inspired the song was a woman that we knew out in LA who had been smoking some some angel dust. <clears throat> First time we saw her, she was talking some crazy stuff, but you know, it's okay, you know. I mean, hey, you know what I mean, it happens. The next time we saw her, she was unkempt. Seemed like she hadn't changed her clothes in a few in a, in a few days. Um uh, she was talking complete nonsense. She was like completely incoherent. Um, I think she, I'm not sure if she knew who we were. She was hearing things. She was talking to uh, the things kind of in a schizoph schizophrenic type of, uh, type of way. And uh, the next time we heard, I heard about her, she had jumped out of a window because she thought she could fly. So at that point, we think, we're thinking to ourselves, okay, so now there are kids out here high school kids, you know, junior high school kids who are out there experimenting with this and it's cheap 
It's readily available. And we just felt like, you know what? This is something we got to talk about. You know, I mean, this is just something that we can't let this go. We can't let it go. And and so we wrote that. We wrote that song. It was basically it was for the kids, you know, maybe for the kids and the parents of the kids. All right. So, Brian, besides Angel Dust, you know, that uh, Secrets album had a lot of other standout cuts. Uh, Third World Revolution was like a real up tempo um, funk kind of thing that I don't think you guys have really ever done quite like that before. And uh, Three Miles Down was kind of a what I call simmering funk kind of kind of thing. And Angola, Angola Louisiana was sort of a shuffling funk uh, mode similar to uh, Hello Sunday, Hello Road. So what else can you tell me about those uh, sessions? And, and I also noticed that you had some interesting new players involved, like Greg Fillingaines and um, Harvey Mason and those kind of guys. Yeah. Well, one of the... I, would you mention the first one? I think you mentioned Third World Revolution. Yeah. I was playing drums on that. Oh, really? <laughs> I finally got I finally got to play drums. <laughs> <laughs> so take that, mom. <laughs> but um, let me see. Uh, yeah, we were we were expanding. I mean, you know, it's it's always a kind of the, the thing about the thing about um, bridges was that we didn't want it to be another kind of winter in America with just me and him playing. I mean, that, that's fine. But, you know, I'm no drummer and I'm no guitarist and I'm no, you know, I mean, there, there, there were other things that, that we wanted to include on it that, that made it, that we really wanted to make, make it feel full. And so on Bridges, Joseph Blocker, we brought in and we brought in Marlo Henderson, who a great, great guitarist, who I knew from originally, I think from having played with Shaka with Shaka Khan and um, and Rufus originally. But um, and so on on um, on Secret, we wanted to to keep that same feel. We we needed a guitarist, and um, Marlo was the man. Marla was able to to match some of the things that I was doing on the synth with with his guitar and, and with the effects that he was that he that he brought in and uh, it was like really a perfect a perfect um, combination. Uh, Harvey Mason was um, the person that we depended on to to give us that rock solid soul. Um, type of foundation that, that we were looking for under because I was playing most of that I was playing the bass um, synthesizer parts and that is very deep and it's very kind of in your face and you, you kind of need drummer you need a drummer who can lock that in. And it's not easy to do when you're not playing together because most of the time we weren't playing together. You know, I would play the bass lines to a uh, drum machine, and then Harvey would come in and lock that in to what I was lock his part into what I was doing. He was a master. He was a master at that. And then Greg Philogenes, of course, played keyboards with almost everybody by now. Yeah, Greg. Yeah, by that time, I think Greg had already. I met Greg when I was um, 
with when when we were doing something with Roy Ayers and, and Greg was on the scene, um, we became friends, and uh, he was always hanging around in the studio and always with that that same excitement and, and enthusiasm that he brought to to everything, and it was just like well we couldn't keep him off of the keyboard. You know, it was just we had to. At some point, we just had to let him play something, you know, <laughs> so he wouldn't implode, you know what I mean? And it was great to hang out with him, you know, and, and obviously the results are, were good. And you had, uh, I would say you boosted the background vocals too. You had the uh, Maxine Waters, among others on there. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, you're talking about, um, in particular, 1980, uh, where we had the Waters do a lot of work. Um, but also on on secrets where we with angel dust um we just we wanted we had been thinking about expanding our our live band to include um vocalists, female vocalists and and we thought this would be a great opportunity to see to experiment with and see how it worked and um it did it worked very well um and it helped to expand the vision of of, of our sound so it was, it was, and they, they were such professionals. I mean, the waters are just absolute professionals. I mean, you could basically just sing a part to them and they would harmonize it right there on the spot. I mean, they were great. Mm -hmm. 